Welcome to Wizard Team, a Harry Potter cast for true Potterheads. Usually each week we discuss a chapter from the Harry Potter series, but today we're doing something a little different. I'm Robin. And I'm Bayana. Today we're doing another bonus episode. We're talking blood purity with Sandra Robinson Burns, founder and headmistress of Heroin Training. Zandra is an author, reader, tea party host in Gryffindor. Um, raised in Boston, she followed her dream across the pond to read English at Oxford, now living in a medieval storybook city of Edinburgh, Scotland. If she were two Disney characters, she would be um, Lady from The Lady and the Tramp and Vanellope from Wreck-It Ralph. Lovely. All right, so we have some really quick announcements. Use the hashtag WizardTeam on Twitter to follow along, and you can also tag and follow us at WeBlackAndNerds. Um, become, become a Patronus or send us a cheering charm at blackgirlscreate.org slash donate. And if you want to support us but don't have the funds to do so, or even if you do, rate and review us on iTunes. Um, subscribe to our newsletter, follow us on social media, join our Slack channel. Keep um, the conversation going. Yeah. And no news. That's a better sign if there's no news. <laughs> um, so welcome, Zandra. Hi. Hi. Thanks for joining us. So I first met Zandra at Granger Leadership Academy um, in St. Louis. And we started talking at a Potterheads of Color meetup because, you know, there aren't very many of color at Potterhead events. Um, if you've ever gone to one. Um, and if you know anything about those kinds of events, there aren't very many of color. So there's probably like five or six of us in this room eating lunch together, talking and um, the Granger Leadership Academy is different than like a convention because it's a leadership training and development course or event. And it's really great. I, it's put on by the Harry Potter Alliance, which as you know, we love them. Um, so I definitely recommend it. But um, ever since I've been wanting, we've, we have both been wanting to get Zandra on the podcast and we're so excited that it's finally happening. So thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to be here. I remember that lunch and you had just come off a panel and I was really excited to talk to you because your energy was so infectious and wonderful. And I just wanted to say, you did such a great job. (laughs) And then you asked me to be on the podcast about Asian representation. And my first reaction was, Oh, I don't feel Asian enough for that podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you came up with this amazing idea about um, speaking about mixed race representation and blood purity. And I think that it actually ends up for the best because um, I think this is a, I mean, it's a great time. Obviously we're in the middle of half blood prints to talk about this stuff, but I also think that it's just a really interesting topic that, I'm glad that we're going to tackle. So thank you for bringing it to our attention, I guess. And never don't feel Asian enough. That is not good English. That's bad English. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was my reaction at the time. And it really got me thinking and is something that I've been thinking about in the two years since is why do I feel that way? And what is it about my experience and how my experience is perceived that makes me feel that way? And so I imagine that's something that we'll, we'll get into in this topic. So before we get in, could you tell us a little bit about heroin training, how you got the idea and um, what you're currently working on? So like I imagine 
many of us uh, can relate to. I I felt like when I was reading the Harry Potter series and other book series growing up that characters were like my friends. And what I would really like, what I'm doing with heroin training is learning from my peers in these fictional characters, but also the aim is to embrace my own journey and cheer for myself as the heroine of my own story in the way that I would root for a character like Hermione, for instance. And, you know, we, we see her make all of these mistakes, but we're rooting for her to overcome them and learn from them. And I, I like to encourage my readers to approach their own journeys in that way. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, that's super cool because then you're able to, and I feel like Robin maybe wrote about this, like, I don't even know how long ago because. Yeah, I'm like, what did I write about? Tell me. It was like at least two <laughs> to maybe three years ago, um, but just about like taking inspiration from like characters oh. in different stories and then like applying that to your own life or like helping, like using that to help yourself kind of like move through the world. Um, I think I believe it was called using fantasy to help with the real world or in the yeah, world. Yeah, something like that. Something around those lines. But yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, and that was really, I, I I went to another convention and I um, talked to people about that and I was thinking a lot about Neville at the time and Luna Lovegood, speaking of like not feeling like you fit, you know? I've always also had that issue of not feeling like I fit. Um, I am not of mixed race, but I've definitely had the you're not black enough conversation more times mm. than I care to think about. Um, and it literally, it, it's something I still kind of struggle with, but it did take me until I turned about 30 to realize that that is a false argument and that I won't hear it anymore. Um, and so, yeah, I was thinking a lot about Luna Lovegood, um, who I named my dog after, <laughs> um, because of her qualities and um, people always thinking like, well, Ravenclaws are this way. They're logical and they, they know facts and, you know, things like that. But it says in like the Ravenclaw motto, you know, it's like creativity and um, wit. And that's not always, you know, being witty is different than being a still trap of a mind. No offense, Diana. <laughs> It's, it's different. Just, it's not. A, it's not offensive. Yeah. <laughs> just saying. It's not yeah, the same. It's just, it's just different. It's not <laughs> yeah, different. that's yeah. fine. <laughs> so, Robin, I have to mention that I understand you're a Ravenclaw and you have a Gryffindor dog. Yes, I'm a Gryffindor and I have a Ravenpaw dog. Um, we should switch. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so someone helped me out a little bit and they were saying that all puppies are Gryffindors. So she might grow into her Ravenclawness. I obviously sorted too soon. She's only six months old, but yeah, she, you know, most dogs like hate skateboards. She runs towards them. They're like, we live next to a lake and they have like literally the, like, I forget that word, like the large industries type of grass mowers like the big um tractory type of things she 
runs at them. And <laughs> I'm like, where is your sense of survival? Like, shouldn't you yeah, be running no. away from those sure, things? Sure. Um, I also almost choked her once because she wanted to follow a bird who was flying into the lake. And if you are no Oakland or anyone's been to Oakland Lake Merritt, it's pretty to walk around, but you do not want to go in that water. Like that it's no. Um, and so like, I definitely wasn't going to jump in after her and save her. So I, I just figured choke her a little bit and then reel her back in like a fish. <laughs> so yeah, that's my, my Gryffindor dog with a Ravenclaw name. Aww. <laughs> What's a Ravenpaw like? Well, you were saying that all all puppies are Gryffindors, but I, I hate to break it to you, but she was definitely a Ravenpaw <laughs> from uh, from when we first met. Really, she was the first one in her litter to have one of her ears up, and so we saw that as a sign of curiosity. And then when we brought her home, she curled up in our library area and decided that that was where she would sleep. Oh my gosh. And, um, she loves learning. She, we go to a puppy class and it's her favorite activity of the week. She loves learning new tricks and, um, she's very curious. She'll sniff out everything and wants to see what everyone's up to. So, that's our, our Ravenpaw puppy. I guess Luna does have those I, those tendencies. Like, her curiosity is what drives the Gryffindor in her. Mm-hmm. She's not Hermione. Like, she should just be named Hermione, I guess, because um, all her curiosity, she's just, instead of being like, hmm, let me sniff this out more and learn more, she just dives head in. She's like, I think I got the gist, and then goes <laughs> I mean, for it. You could always go for like an epilogue Potter family style name of like Luna Hermione. Love good. Yeah. I can do that. Like you were named for one Ravenclaw and one Gryffindor. Um, Bayana's little sister has already given her way too many names. So we'll see. She could, we could just tack on another one at this point. Might as um, well. She's already got four names. So. What are the other ones? Um, so it's Luna Lovegood Fitzgerald because um, my first dog is Zel- Princess Zelda Fitzgerald. So we just wanted them to be related. Oh. Yeah, Princess Zelda because her dad oh. is, a, is a nerd, like, typical. And then Zelda Fitzgerald because I'm a, a bookish nerd. Um, and my, best, my nerdy best friend came up with that um, when we picked her up from the pound. Um, so her name is Luna Lovegood Fitzgerald. Bye, because Bayana's little sister likes to um, put her name on everything. Um, so even my name now is Robin Jordan Bye, <laughs> which doesn't make any sense, but uh, it's a long name. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess the Luna Lovegood part is sort of one name. Yeah. True. So there's there's space. Luna Lovegood Hermione Fitzgerald. And bye. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and for this edition of Robin's Dogs Wizard Team. 
That's what this special episode is about, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, since I've got her, I think a lot of our episodes end up being about her. <laughs> she, um, she likes to be, involve herself. Yeah. Um, definitely Gryffindor. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. She has a she has a mediocre white man sense of herself. <laughs> Insert herself into every conversation. Oh my gosh. Okay. Um, so really quickly, right, like, uh, like along with heroin training, what other kinds of things are you working on right now? So as part of heroin training, what? I mean, it's it's a website, so um, most of my work is online, and I publish online. But after going to the Granger Leadership Academy, what I was really inspired to do was to start to meet people face to face more. I I was so inspired by the power of of connecting with people with like minded people that had the same had had mutual friends in the Harry Potter characters and other literary characters that I wanted to create a space for people to do that more. And so I started a heroin training tea party tour where pretty much every time I'm traveling somewhere, I'll find a cute location and bring people together in a sort of salon style discussion. And this summer, I'm doing my first extended event that's going to be a tea party, but also a, we're calling it a tea retreat, where mm-hmm. it's a, a day of self-development and yoga and tea party. And um, it's called the Rebel Heroin Retreat, and we're doing self-care for activists. Ooh, that sounds really fun. Yeah, and necessary, I've found from personal yeah. experience. So the idea is my friend who is um, a yoga instructor and also a Gryffindor, she is is leading us through some restorative yoga and meditation. And then I will be helping everyone figure out how to work that type of, of restorative activity into your, into your daily life outside of the retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm sure there'll be lots of of geeky things and references as well, (laughs) knowing us. (laughs) Of course. And that's taking place here in Edinburgh. And by the way, you pronounced Edinburgh perfectly, and I was really impressed. Oh, yay. (laughs) Yay. I feel Um, like I've watched enough, like, Doctor Who and, like, just lots of, like, British shows, so... (laughs) It's also where, isn't it where JK lives now, Joe Rowling? Yes, it is. What is that like to be surrounded by, and what I've heard since um, I have not been to Edinburgh yet, which I really want to go because I really want to go to the French festival one day, um, is that like every other coffee shop or pub is like, this is where Harry Potter was written. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, actually one of my favorite coffee shops has a sign on it that says JK Rowling never wrote here. (laughs) (laughs) and then i need to ask someone who works there about this because then it says in like smaller print in the corner and i never will jk rowling so i don't know (laughs) like it kind of looks like her handwriting but it's i don't know i want to get the full story there i'll I'll leave that up to mystery um what i find really amazing about living here is that there are things you can do that are harry potter specific like you can go and see 
Tom Riddle's grave where she got the name Tom Riddle, or you could go, you could look out on the water and there's this Island that apparently inspired Azkaban there's, and then of course the coffee shops. But what I find more interesting than going to those specific locations is just sort of walking around the city and feeling it and saying like, this makes sense. There's a (laughs) castle here. And then you sort of notice some things um, sometimes that aren't pointed out in the tours, um, of like night bus. And there's a, um, there's a estate agent or a realtor here called Galbraith. And I kind of wonder, it sparks a little, um, it's a little recognition of like, I wonder if she saw that same sign and came up with a name from that. And it's more of those question marks that are really fun to have pop up during the day for me. Yeah. I just finished reading um, this book by another friend of uh, with her team, Marco Shero, called Anger is a Gift. And it's set in Oakland. And it's so great to read it. And like, they'll say like, hey, let's meet at Farley's East. Or they'll um, there's a passage where they talk about riding their bikes past the lake and Grand Avenue and all these things. And it's just like really great to walk around and, and like, be like, oh, okay. Or like, even when I was just reading it, I was like, I know that's right in my neighborhood. Or, you know, like he actually rides down the street that is, um, he rides bike down the street that is one over from me, from me where Mark actually used to live on Jackson street. And so it was so cool to like be reading this book and like know where he was in like relation to the story. And I know that when, um, Bayana and I traveled to London to go to the play and then we went to like the studio tour and stuff. There were all these times when we would like turn the corner and we're like, this is Diagon Alley or like, this is, you know, like, and like being able to really like see the inspiration, I guess, or see what I would think that she sees when she, um, was writing it is really cool. So I think that's awesome to like live in that all the time. It must be like inspirational too. Yeah. I think Diagon Alley in particular is a great example because one of my pet peeves is all of these tours claiming that all of these random streets in Britain inspired Diagon Alley when mm-hmm. really I, <laughs> I don't know if there's a canon inspiration for Diagon Alley, but the the concept of Diagon Alley to begin with is this this idea that in between the shops that you're rushing past, there's a door that you're missing. And mm-hmm. if you look closely enough at what's going on around you, you could stumble down this this secret magic passageway. Yeah. Which I, I think, I, I mean, I, we could talk about my love and fascination of Europe uh, forever. And I really want to, like, ask you how you, like, I mean, I know you went there for school and then you stayed. But, like, I need to get, I need to live in London or Scotland at some point. I need to yes, like, you do. breathe that air. <laughs> <laughs> you can hire me, maybe, um, <laughs> to, get me, to get me over there. Uh, but... Yeah, I think that that is a really good, I like a really good point to point out because I think um, when you're when you're writing and um, 
I think all of us on, in this conversation have, have written things. Your surroundings really do inspire those things. And um, it's more about the feel of the place. And like, there, I don't, I don't think that there is one. I mean, we tried to do this like walking tour that I found online and it was like, go here. And it was like, imagine that this is what, mm. you know, or like this could have been, you know, like, what she was thinking of when she thought of um, the leaky cauldron or something like that. But I think that idea of just like your surroundings just kind of bleed into what you're creating is really cool. Yeah. I mean, you don't need a tour for yeah. that. You yeah. just wander around. Yeah. That's kind of what, what we I ended up doing. <laughs> yeah. like, hey, it, we were like, this isn't actually helpful. So we're just going to walk. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to walk and just like live in, the wizarding world on our own. Yeah. So let's get to kind of the reason for us being here and talking about things. Um, what do you, what do you think about the system of blood purity in the wizarding world? And what about, what, what about the series made you think like, Oh, you know, this is something that, relates to like how I feel about mixed race and or being a mixed race person. I think it's really random. And the, I, I kept getting confused as a reader about what does it mean to be a half blood? Because Harry has a wizard, a pure blood father and a muggle born mother, but also if someone had a wizard father and a muggle mother, they would still be half blood. Mm -hmm. And so like the, the maths don't add up, but I remember relating to, um, I, I relate to Harry's experience, particularly in chamber of secrets when this stigma around muggle borns is coming out because he spent all of his childhood growing up with muggles and is new to the wizarding world. But because he's a half-blood, he is sort of arbitrarily accepted. And I say that I relate to him now because as a kid, I didn't realize that I was a racial minority. I always thought of myself as a white kid. And it wasn't until I got to high school that I was told otherwise <laughs> where I went to a posh New England prep school that was very concerned with its image and appearing to be diverse. And so I, I started to notice myself being counted as a minority so that they could say they had this percentage of, mm. um, ethnic minorities. Um, and it would be, it was a really strange experience. That's, it's, it's always like a very strange thing in general because, um, you know, Bayana's little sister is five, almost six. And like kids don't really care. I mean, they notice, you know, and they'll talk about like how like your skin's really pretty and dark or, you know, like they'll say like that, that person's super white, you know, and you're like, oh, calm down, you know, but it's very much just like, no, physically, that dude's, like, super pale. <laughs> like, your skin is a really pretty dark color. Like, it's not, there's no, like, deeper meaning that goes into it. And we kind of 
like adults bleed that into their psyche. And at a certain point it does switch. Cause I do remember I grew up in a minority white and Latino um, place. It's more Latino now than it was when I grew up there. But I remember like around junior high, really like I knew I was black. That wasn't a, a deal, but I remember it becoming a thing that was pointed out more in junior high um, and like late elementary school. And I, re- and it was kind of like a arbitrary, like f- switch that got flipped that it started being commented on as like something that separated me, but also for adults, it was like, Hey, look, look, we're diverse, you know, be in the picture. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like, um, be on our newsletter cover or whatever, just because we have, we have someone with some melanin or that looks different than the vast majority of everyone else. And then for kids, because you're getting singled out by the adults then they start to like pick up on that as well. How did that, did, did you, cause I know that you started reading the books when you were younger. Did, is that something that you started to like understand in the, in the text after like certain rereads or did that come up to you in the first read of Chamber of Secrets? It definitely didn't come up consciously. Mm. And I'm, it's hard to pinpoint when I noticed that, but something that I was shocked to realize later in life was how there are so few characters who look like me on screen. And so even when, like, it, it was, it was cool to have Mulan, <laughs> but I still didn't feel like I could relate to her because, um, because I, 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 I felt like I was just a, a brown haired Caucasian girl. Um, so during my lifetime, there are only three characters that I feel like look like me on screen. One is from my favorite movie, Kiki's Delivery Service. Yeah. Have you Kiki. seen it? Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's in this intentionally ambiguous European city and in the style of Japanese animation. So I always felt this affinity with, with Kiki and looking back, I'm like, Oh yeah. <laughs> I, and then the, um, she really the is. I didn't, two. I never thought of that. Sorry. I just, yeah. Yeah. I, no, yeah. soak it in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I didn't really consciously notice that until, until later on as well, but I always felt the special connection to Kiki and it's probably why I'm a witch. Uh, yeah. An entrepreneur slash witch, yeah. just like Kiki. <laughs> um, and then the only other um, half Korean characters were the brothers in big hero six, which oh. was just a couple of years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so they're all animated characters <laughs> and um I can, uh, there's three of them that I can recall. And another, um, another way that I realized that I was being treated differently was I 
was really into musical theater as a kid. And when I got to this high school, I auditioned for a couple of things and didn't get a part. And then I, I got cast as a Japanese tourist mm. and felt kind of weird about that. And so I didn't audition for the next musical, which was Thoroughly Modern Millie. But <gasps> yeah, the <laughs> so you know where this story is going. Yeah. But the yeah. director out of the blue started begging me to try out. And he was like, we really need you for the show. And I was so confused. Um, and then wow. when I saw it, I understood why they ended up having two Indian kids as the, um, the Japanese Chinese. or the Chinese. Yeah, I think so. I, either way it's a terrible, if you haven't seen thoroughly modern Millie, it is, um, a movie from, the fifties or something has Mary Tyler Moore and uh, who's Millie. Is it Julie Andrews? Maybe. I don't know. Um, And like Carol Channing. And then they made a Broadway play out of a Broadway musical out of it. But like, so it's, it's in the fifties, but it's, it's in the fifties. And if you guys know anything about the fifties, they did not care. And so the, that there's an Asian, there's a storyline of I always thought that they were Chinese um, but they basically are kidnapping um, single unattached girls from New York and shipping them to like human traffic them basically in Asia Um, but like in the most stereotypical gross it's, it's one of my favorite musicals it's the first musical that I saw um, and I saw it at the, like when it was in rehearsals before it went to Broadway and Kristen Chenoweth was in it. And I thought that was really cool. Oh, wow. Um, that is cool. Yeah. <laughs> when they adapted it and they adapted it in like the two thousands, uh, late nineties, but like early two thousands, they softened the Asian racism, but they did not get rid of it. Cause it is kind of a plot point is that. Millie is, um, and her friend are in danger of being kidnapped and shipped to Asia, but it's just done in a really, really gross way. Just think of the fifties and you'll know what I'm, what I'm trying to say here. (laughs) Um, so, and what's amazing about that too, is that musicals in general really do colorblind casting. So, in um, the Broadway debut, the person that plays um, Jimmy's mother, um, he's, uh, he's a white character. He was, he's, Jimmy was played by Gavin Creel. He's white and blonde and whatever. And his mom was played by, I don't know if anyone watched Moesha, um, but Moesha's stepmother, whose name I cannot remember right now, but she's oh. like an amazing stage actress Is it Cheryl Cheryl something Lee Ralph maybe yes yes yeah. Cheryl Lee Ralph plays his mom and if you guys remember the like Brandy Cinderella where it was like Whoopi Goldberg and Victor Garber were the parents of a Korean Prince Charming like that happened so it's really doubly gross to hear the story of your high school drama teacher being like, we really need you in this part. Cause we really don't like, <laughs> it's like, do you know what I mean though? It's like, it, 
in theater, it's supposed to be like, if you can do the character, you do the character. It doesn't really matter. Um, unless it's like an integral choice, like they did with Hamilton, like, and it is like a part of the way that the play is supposed to be delivered. Like the audience will get it through song, through the plot, like that you're Asian, you know, or not. So yeah. Sorry. Well, I think what was happening in in his defense was that he was trying to be respectful of, of not dressing up a white person as an Asian person because yes. Asianness was integral to that character. Um, why this, why the school was putting this show on with that content in it in the first place <laughs> is another matter. But what I, how I wish the situation were handled um, looking back on it now was I wish he could have, had a conversation with me and the other several Asian students that he approached in this way saying like, I I don't want to be offensive with this cast. And I, I want to talk to you about how you feel about that because it made us all kind of feel singled out. Mm -hmm. And like, I think the, the fact that we weren't even sure if they were Japanese or Chinese (laughs) characters speaks to, to how stereotyped and how generalized Asia was (laughs) in this role um, and how, like, it would have been great to, to be able to have a conversation about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's also just something that's really important in general. I remember my, um, best friend in college is half Chinese and she asked me once about the nod, which I don't know if you guys know about, but it's something that happens in black culture where if you are in a predominantly white space and you see another black person, you kind of, you give them a nod. It's just like a, Hey, I see you. We're here together. Like if anything goes down, holler (laughs) Um, type of a situation. And so she, we were walking and I nodded to maybe like two or three black people and she was my best friend so she was like how do you know them and I was like I don't (laughs) and she kind of it was a a really funny thing that we laugh about all the time um she was like well I'm a minority like why don't they nod to me and I was like well one it's it's a black thing but two like a minute ago you were talking about how you were just this like Scandinavian girl from Minnesota so which is it you know (laughs) um and we laugh about it but like I do think about like and we it sparked a conversation though between us because I was, I, I did wonder, you know, like how it feels to be able to like what I saw as like code switching um, and like kind of moving between her identities. She just kind of, that was just her. Like she was an Asian who was also a, you know, Lithuanian girl from Minnesota. So like, having that conversation though also like helped me understand, you know, how she moves through life and, and what is, you know, her perspective on things. Mm. What's interesting to me about the nod is bringing it back to Harry Potter with your blood status. That's not something that's not a physical appearance thing. You Mm -hmm. only know that through, knowing the background of your peers and I guess the wizarding world is just super small and word gets around 
but yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask about that just in terms of Harry Potter and how like, because it, like, at least for now, like the main note, like half bloods that we like, we see a lot of them, but the ones that are like bigger in the world, I guess, or like in the story is like Harry, Voldemort and Snape are like kind of main mm-hmm. three who are like, like it gets pointed out that that's like their blood status, but it also doesn't like past like Voldemort being, you know, a hypocrite and like also like and trying to kill all muggles <laughs> and Snape. Yeah. To a degree as well. It's interesting to see, like, Harry doesn't often have to deal with the fact that he's half-blood. Like, he either, well, like, part of the fact is that he's Harry Potter. So he's, like, famous and people are just, like, that's who he is. But um, especially towards, like, in the beginning, a lot of it is just the fact that he was, like, raised by muggles. But then I wonder if him being half-blood would matter if he was raised by wizards. You know what I mean? Like, as... Like, because he's our, like, insert into the world, we see it and we're learning things as he does. But then it also, like, his particular, like, he's learning things as Muggleborns are, but then he doesn't get the, like, the, like, the stigma attached to him. You know, as you're saying that, too, I wanted to add another, uh, two more characters, which um, we kind of find out about their half-bloodness after the fact, which is Dean Thomas Mm -hmm. and Umbridge. Um, who Umbridge Umbridge goes out of her way. And I think this is also an interesting thing because Harry's raised by muggles. And I think this is the same for like muggle-borns too, is you don't, when you enter the world, right? It's like, uh, like you said, like you can't see their blood status from their appearance. And when you enter the world, you may not, you don't really know that that's something that you should, that is important, right? Mm -hmm. So like Hermione's like, my parents are dentists and I'm still going to, you know, be the smartest, the brightest witch of my age. But there's something happened at Hogwarts, whether it's running into someone like Draco or just, you know, overall getting a sense of the society. Or the Chamber of Secrets being open. Or the Chamber of Secrets being open. Exactly. (laughs) Where you start to think, oh, this might be information that I should hold close to the best or be a little bit more protective of. Umbridge is not only ashamed of her muggle mother but like also her wizard father who was not um as ambitious or successful as she would have hoped him to be so and she bullies people really into believing her false narrative of who she is and where she comes from um and dean is a half-blood but like harry was raised by muggles and never and doesn't even know his blood status really um and he just like acts as if he is muggle-born yeah yeah like when you know when things go down and voldemort's like hey there's this registry he's like well i can't prove anything so i'm gonna just go <laughs> yeah but i don't know what the question was there yeah but. I I might have taken it over by being like, oh, I know some more characters. (laughs) Well, with all of these things in the Harry Potter series, we have such a small sample size. And so Mm -hmm. what I'm thinking about is, could this be a Slytherin thing? And could this be a generational thing? Where Mm -hmm. uh, Tom Riddle, Snape, Umbridge, all Slytherins who... I think they sort of put it on themselves 
Definitely, um, yeah. Well, I, I guess like it's in the description for the house is that Salazar Slytherin wanted pure blood. So being sorted into a house that's characterized for something that you, you don't quite fit the bill on is probably quite damaging at 11 years old. Right. And so they feel the need to, to compensate. And I think, um, maybe, we, I can't think of any contemporary to Harry Slytherins who aren't pure bloods that we know of. But Dean seems quite flippant about his background. And he's like, yeah, this is, this is who I am. And I wonder if that's because Gryffindor doesn't put that pressure on him. Yeah. I also was thinking, I know that like Dean is not as close to Harry, so he's not as big of a target. But I'm wondering what that is like because we do see Draco go after Hermione a lot, calling her muggle, like mud blood and going after that part of her. Um, obviously not going after Harry's blood status because he's Harry Potter and that just doesn't really apply to him. But is there also <clears throat> like a, a gender thing going on too, where he feels more empowered to go after Hermione because she's a girl doesn't really, I, we don't, I don't believe we see him call Dean a mudblood, right? The only thing he has on her. Right? Yeah, true. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, that is true. Like when you when you were in like school or outside spaces where your identity is less. Except, I mean, when you're at home, it's it, it is what it is, right? It's your home. Did you did you find yourself in your like more formative years um, trying to compensate as well, or were you more secure in who you were, even as like society was putting that on you, like in school and stuff? Compensate in what way? Of um, I don't want to say like in the sneak Voldemort way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't obviously like want to go there, but like of either reinforcing your whiteness or reinforcing mm. your Asian or Koreanness, I guess would be the right. Yeah, yeah. My my mom is Korean, and I am trying to remember when I noticed because obviously, like I knew that my mom was Korean, and I knew that that was not white, <laughs> but I. I always felt, I've always categorized myself with the white kids. And I still find myself doing that where I think it was at GLA. Um, a bunch of us were having a conversation about like, well, I would love to do this, but um, like, we don't need another like, white woman speaking about this subject. And I was like, yeah, me too. And then I was like, oh, wait, wait, I count. I count. as a white <laughs> And so it's sort of, I'm sort of reminded of that sometimes still. And I remember one of my friends parents and, um, they're 100% Filipino was talking to me about the experience of looking different as a kid. And I remember being confused about why she was talking to me about it because I never felt that I looked different. Hmm. And at the same time, I, so going back to what, what I was saying about like my, my personal experience of race, 
I feel I feel this affinity for my Korean heritage, but I don't speak Korean. And I've been there once for seven days. And I'm familiar with the food, but a lot of it I've taught myself how to cook out of sort of personal interest rather than being raised to have a lot of Korean food. And so I feel like I can't quite represent that experience, but it still feels like like it is my experience. And so I, I feel like sometimes I'm tiptoeing within my own identity of like, I feel, I, I feel like I'm a part of this, but I also want to respect people who are more a part of this. And then where, where my experience lies is sort of in one foot in, um, in a couple of different cultures. Mm. Yeah. I think that's, like really universal. I, I, I'm starting to think that there is kind of the mixed experience that spans what you're like spans that. So I think that you might have more in common with someone who's half black and half white or half black and Asian or half Asian. And I don't know, like anything, anything, um, <laughs> any like more, like I feel like mixed people, will have experiences that are as similar, like regardless of what races they're mixed with. And then you also have these experiences um, that are tied to those specific identities. Mm-hmm. So it's this weird, and I'm, I'm, I'm not mixed, so I don't know, but I, um, I, I feel as though it might just be this weird, um, categorization that has become its own race in a way (laughs) or its own identity, I guess. Yeah. And filling in forms is difficult, (laughs) (laughs) but that's, that's really comforting to hear actually, because sometimes it can feel a bit isolating, but on top of, of my ethnic background, I'm now an American citizen living in the UK. And so there's nationality, tied into that as well, where uh, on forums, it's like, check off what race you are. And it's like British. (laughs) (laughs) No, (laughs) but, um, it's British, even a race. (laughs) (laughs) I I I feel like, um, I feel like every time there's a form with like six checkbox check boxes, what I check is always different. (laughs) Um, it's really hilarious what my high school categorized me as, but I'll, I'll try to remember it. It was, they were like, they're really trying. <laughs> yeah. That might come to me later. <laughs> um, were there like things through like in the Harry Potter books that you felt like rang true for your experience or things, or were there things that you thought were missing that you thought like could have kind of complicated it more or like given it more nuance? I think a lot of what I related to in the series were um, the personalities. And I really felt this connection to Hermione as a kid who cared about school Mm -hmm. when the, the cool thing to do was to not care about school. So to, to meet this other person in a sense who had that, those same values was, was really um, encouraging for me and something that became 
clear to me at a panel on femininity at GLA, which Robin, I remember you were there as well, was that all of the feminine characters in the Harry Potter series are either evil or stupid Stup- or yeah. perceived Shallow. to be stupid. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I guess Fleur gets a little bit of redemption because mm-hmm. people, we, we sort of see her through the lens of Harry and his friends who are judging her. And then she's like, you thought this about me, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I think that was, that was probably really influential on, on me growing up as a sort of tomboy where I felt like I could either be smart or I could, I could be feminine. There was no, um, there was no option to be both. I think that as you said, that totally rings true to me too. Um, Mm. I remember having a conversation with my therapist actually about, like why I don't like it when people comment on my looks or like say that I'm cute or pretty or something like that, which I don't one, cause I don't feel cute or pretty, um, which is my own issue. But then two, because I feel like I would rather, they, and I think I said, which is the JK Rowling thing too. is like, I would rather they talk about how smart I am or they talk about how, if I'm funny or, you know, like these other attributes and, and it was the same, like, well, why can't, why can't it be both? Like, why does one negate the other? And we've talked about it a lot during our rereads about the way that she physically describes characters. Um, And it is both, there's only, like, two handsome yet evil characters, and that's Draco and then Tom Riddle. But then, of course, when Tom Riddle becomes Voldemort, he sheds any human-like appearance and looks more like a snake. And it's, you know... um, just this other worldly thing. Um, and then even like Millicent Bullstrom, she talks about having um, like. She looks like a pug, right? She looks like a pug. Yeah. Or something. yeah. And crab or something looks like he's part troll and mm-hmm. um, Umbridge has like toad, like, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's feminine. She's overly feminine with all of her frills and her pink and stuff, but she also looks like a toad. Um, and there isn't, like the capability of being good and feminine or good or bad and feminine and pretty. Like it doesn't exist in that world. It's very binary in certain ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I mean, like we you mentioned Flora and like, we've been talking about her in the last couple mm-hmm episodes I guess maybe. actually I guess it's now it's been like a little bit but just talking about how the ways that like she's not even really doing anything and they're just like oh she's the worst and she's just sitting there like she, <laughs> like she just happens to be pretty and everybody's just like no this is awful why can't she and it's just like you know especially like for kids reading it at like a formative time like I didn't question that when I was first reading those books and then it's like now I'm like well, wait a minute that <laughs> doesn't make sense so yeah like there yeah it's definitely like gaps and stuff in certain situations and I guess Cho is is described as being pretty but she's also an athlete mm-hmm. and um she's also seen as being overly emotional mm-hmm 
which is also really like always it's again I guess I I don't know if I questioned it the first time I read it but now it's like really infuriating because like she should be very emotional she's gone through a lot of trauma like (laughs) I would be worried if she weren't right like um just because Harry has the emotional range of a teaspoon and Ron doesn't mean that you know show shouldn't be emotional um Mm -hmm. yeah so I'm wondering as well, do you think that there were like aspects of the blood status system in the world that you identified that you identify with now? And like what parts were you drawn? What parts of the system were you drawn to? Like, you, like we said earlier, like you're the one that came up with this idea um, for the bonus episode. So um, just kind of what, why that those connections um, or what about those connections speak to you? So in the trio, we have Harry, the half-blood, Hermione, the muggle-born, and Ron, the pure-blood. And Hermione gets all of this crap for being muggle-born. And as we've discussed, that's probably projection on um, of, of Draco, etc., other stuff onto her, but they're able to single her out for being a muggle-born, where Harry sort of gets away with with his muggleness. Um, he's sort of... I, I feel like he's thought of as a pure-blood. And I that, that idea of, like, getting away with it somehow, that confusion in in your... the background and your identity is, is what I could relate to. And... Um, I would either my I feel like my experience of 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 being discriminated against or marginalized in some way is like there I I've experienced some of it and I've also not I also can't relate to what others have experienced and I get kind of categorized into like, oh, you're Asian, so, um, or some people don't even realize that um, that I'm half Asian, and so I, I I get this sort of identity projected onto me mm. in the way that I think um, that Harry and probably Dean as well felt of like, oh, you're one of us because you have some <laughs> some of you're like us in this one arbitrary way where this girl is not or Colin Creevy with his weird camera is not. <laughs> I, th- I think that's the, that's the core of it really is this sort of projected identity. Yeah. As you're saying that too, I was thinking about the projection and, you know, talking about like overcompensation. The reason why Harry is the chosen one is because Voldemort chooses him over Neville. Like Neville could have easily been um, his like rival, but he obviously projected that fact that Harry is a half blood um, and Neville's pure blood, that it must be Harry Potter, his equal. Um, even though like he would never admit to not being pure blood to anyone, to himself, um, when he's making that choice, that becomes an issue. Right. Or like when he does mention having muggle blood, because like I think he 
during his resurrection or whatever, because they were like at his dad's yeah. grave. Yeah. And mm. he's just like, yeah, my dad was muggle, but he was like filthy and awful and like left my mom. And so, you know, which is, it gives him an excuse to be like, this is why muggles are all terrible. Trash. Which is also really a, another interesting like correlation with Dean again is like his origin story is wrong. <laughs> like he mm-hmm. doesn't know, he doesn't fully understand or know his own history. And I'm wondering, because um, we've talked about that as our, in our experiences as African-American um, women about just not being really able to trace your history and what that does and those blind spots. Um, and I'm wondering with you, like, we have a cultural, you know, history. Um, I could speak for both Bayana and myself because we're related. So, um, <laughs> like, actually related and spending holidays, our families spend holidays together, things like that. Um, we have a shared understanding of a certain, to a certain point of what, of where we come from. And it's a part of our, maybe even if it's not a part of our everyday, like Bayana and I grew up in different places. And so our everyday is different in those important moments. Like we know about like, you know, we have like cultural things. Like we make monkey bread for, uh, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas and that's important to us. And that's a family thing. And I remember you talking about like teaching yourself Korean food and stuff like that, that, that having those like blind spots in certain parts of your history, what is, what is, could you explain to me like, what's that like and how you've navigated that? Yeah. Tangentially, I, I just felt inspired to talk about to all the boys I've loved before, (laughs) which is coming out on Netflix soon. The um, film adaptation. Yeah. And never have I felt so specifically represented than in this YA novel about two, um, well, three sisters with a Caucasian dad and a Korean mom and the older sister moves to Scotland and, um, wow. That's on the nose. <laughs> oh, and it takes place in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I was born. Oh man. Oh wow. So <laughs> I was like, <laughs> definitely not. Um, but I was like, after all these years of, and, um, I always felt like I would, I would write children's books as a children, as a child, <laughs> as a child. I would write children's books and all the characters in the children's books were white because all the characters in the children's books that I read were white. And so I was always like, well, where's this person's parent from? Like France, maybe? (laughs) I always felt like I had to learn about a culture in order to like put in the background because like I never read about Korean kids, but um, why was I talking about this? About oh, the, the blind spots blind in, spot, yeah. in, um, in my upbringing. And in this, in this novel, the, the, the mother had died several years ago. And so the, the girls are being raised by their white dad and he feels this responsibility to like, make sure that they, they know Korean cooking and things. And my, my mom's experience moving to Virginia from South Korea when she was eight years old was her family was determined to do things the American way. And so they would 
practice speaking English at home and would make American food and um, and took on this national identity of we're, we're here to be American. And so it wasn't a... It wasn't a big part of my my upbringing to make sure that I knew about Korean things because that was not what my mom's childhood experience was like. And as I as I experience Koreanness now, I I am surprised by how much of it I can understand. So I I go to I go to films that are in Korean whenever they're screening. Um, which is not very often. So I always make a point to do that. And I'm surprised by how I can often translate what I can, I can predict the subtitle before it comes up just from hearing my mom talk to my Hamani, my grandmother on the phone and from like being around the language and being around the culture. I, a lot of, a lot more of it is familiar to me than I even realize. And now like Korean food is being, is really trendy. And so I'm like, let me tell you about kimchi. <laughs> but <laughs> so like, I know more than most than the average person, I suppose, but, but because I, I know what I don't know, I feel distance from it. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I get that a lot too. Yeah. That's, That's really good to hear. <laughs> yeah. No, I feel like it really is like Robin was talking about just like African-American experience that does like track like that everything you were just saying I was like yep I feel <laughs> um, that often where I'm like yeah. yeah I know this this and this but like <laughs> something over there it's real hazy and I know it's there and I just know yeah. that I don't it's hard sometimes when you know you don't know something too like if you just yeah. don't know it and it's just like out in the whatever then you don't it's, think about it yeah but, you're like, just completely you know ignorant of it you're like <laughs> yeah. oh god you just it like makes you feel more self-conscious about it yeah, I actually just had this 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 feeling because the World Cup is on right now, and um, Bayana's little sister is Senegalese, and getting really excited because the Senegal team won, and then feeling a little jealous <laughs> <laughs> that like I can't you know unless I do twenty three and me or something like that, which I don't trust those things, but like I couldn't tell you you know like what where what home country. I should, you know, cheer for, I'm assuming, somewhere in West Africa. Right. Mm. <laughs> but I don't know what that is, right? So there's also this weird, I don't know if jealousy is the right word or envy or something of people that that aren't ignorant of that thing that you know you're ignorant of, <laughs> you know? Um, Wait, say that one more time? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a, it's a confusing conundrum. This... <laughs> Jealousy or envy, and I feel like both of those words are too strong, but um, this jealousy or envy of people who are not ignorant of the thing that you know you're ignorant about. So right. the idea that, like, like um, you know that you're Senegalese and you can trace back to, like, where in Senegal your family came from, and that just being lost to me. Like, I could, I could not do that with any certainty right or even um like your your mother moved from korea and so like they can you know know where in korea they came from um it's kind of a a privilege that is denied 
us. And so, which is like a weird thing to say, right? That that's kind of a privilege, um, but it, it, it feels, it hurts a little bit more, right? Mm-hmm. That there is those things that you're ignorant of or these blind spots that other people that look like you don't have. That made any sense. So it's kind of a word vomity sentence, but <laughs> I mean, I'm getting that same sort of confusion that I get when I try to untangle the the meaning of the blood status in the wizarding world, <laughs> where um, we we feel this need to categorize and label ourselves and label those around us. I I think to to simplify what's going on when really um, it doesn't makes sense. Yeah. What's really funny too, because I think I was just asking Bayana to explain Harry's blood status to me too. Cause I, I think that like re- recently happened where I was like, but his mom's, a, his mom is magical. And she's yeah. like, but she's muggle born. And I was like, but yeah. she's magical. So why isn't he pure blood? But it's like, yeah, it's like, it's so arbitrary, but they, but it still is like important. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it's like a part of their everyday life, even though it like does not make sense. Which I right. Think. So it's like Harry's children are they pure blood or are they still half blood? Like right. He marries pure blood, and he's a half blood. But his mom was magical. So when do they get? When do they get grandfathered in? You know, or mm-hmm. it's a it's kind of the one drop rule or like any bit of no matter like your hat right your your mother is korean Mm -hmm. and then your father is white and so if and when you have kids they're still mixed but you know what i mean like yeah what are you know like (laughs) as as the generations go when does it stop yeah exactly yeah (laughs) and like i don't know exactly what my Caucasian background is I, I know that I am probably part English and more probably part Scottish because my surname is Burns. It's a very Scottish name. And so I feel this affinity with, with Scotland as well, without, um, without having been raised with any, any Scottish culture, Mm -hmm. but, um, the first time that I came to Edinburgh, I did feel this kind of affinity of like, Oh my, I know I have some heritage here. So I I guess I, I get to like, I get a few different places that I get to, (laughs) that I get to call home. But in terms of the, um, the fiddliness of the blood, blood status stuff in, in the wizarding world, I think as well, um, living in the UK, what, what I've observed and what other people have said as well is that the stigma around race in the U S, um, is less of a, is, is a lesser stigma to that of class here in the UK. And, um, in particular people's accents and the different regions that people come from, obviously talking to somebody who's from here would give you a fuller, sense of, of what that's like, but I, it's something that's, that's become apparent to me is that based on someone's voice, you can tell what kind of, what kind of where, where they grew up and, and what their background is. Mm -hmm. 
I get that too um, from just being a Doctor Who fan. <laughs> and, okay. <laughs> um, and knowing, like, it's very, like, um, Christopher Eccleston, the first Doctor, had a lot to say about, like, the class issue because he has more of a, I guess, working class or, like, northern accent or something. Um, and then... David Tennant, who was Scottish, was made to put on an English accent when he was um, cast as the doctor. But Peter Capaldi, who is also Scottish, but is like famously Scottish, like his um, biggest role before Doctor Who was this like famously like foul mouthed Scott um, in this show, The Thick of It, was allowed to keep his accent. And I think because. Um, Either his English accent was not credible, or I don't I don't know. Um, but I assume that most most English actors are very good with accents. Um, but I think I would I would I assume that he was allowed to keep his Scottish accent because he is famously Scottish, and it would just be weird to look at Peter Capaldi and have another accent come out where that wasn't really the case with David Tennant when he was. Um, mm, I didn't know that about David Tennant. Yeah, he's Scottish, and um, he they he put on an English accent, and he's a great. He's I think he's great at accents. He um, puts on an American accent um, pretty well in some of the stuff that he's done. Um, Jessica Jones, if you have if you've seen that. Um, no, Jessica Jones. He's still British, I think. But he's British. He's British, but he he's yeah. not. It's not. He's not Scottish. Yeah. Um, and then in um, which is really hard for me. Yeah. As someone who loves him in Doctor Who. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to that's besides him. the point. <laughs> um, but um, I'm thinking of the English or the American remake of Broadchurch, which I can't remember the name. He puts on an American accent, I believe, and same in the that. Fright Night movie he puts on. Well, he, I think he does both actually, which is really this like funny thing that happens when he gets revealed. Anyway, point of all of that is that is how I understand the class structure in Britain is through television. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> a good way to know it. <laughs> and the, the controversy surrounding it, but. Um, yeah, I, we when we went to London, we also had someone talk to us about how weird it was that we highlighted our identity as, as be, of being black. And I, Brian, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he said something like, "We just don't do that here. We don't yeah. identify that way." Which we were like, "That's not true." <laughs> we've spoken to and we've seen um, British people of color, especially black Brits, and they they know that it's a thing. So. Um, it's a place of privilege that you can just ignore that, you know, or say that, that that's not a issue. Um, but it is a very strange thing. And I'm wondering if you can, and it, this goes back to Harry Potter, I promise, if you can talk about, which is also joining a culture where something that was never, either was never a um, an issue where you come from becomes an issue or something um, that people ignore. As it, so 
how do I, I'm going to put this in Harry Potter terms. So Harry Potter comes from the muggle world and he doesn't have any idea about blood purity or blood status. And then when he joins the wizarding world, it's, it's, it's an issue um, that he then has to kind of learn and reckon with. And how do you, um, how do you kind of reckon with that? But also the idea that like race is not an issue in Harry Potter where like, it's just unbelievable. Like it obviously would be right. Um, because it's an urban fantasy. So it's still set in our world, even though they have the secretive world, just because blood purity is the bigger issue does not make racism non-existent. Diana, can you summarize what I was trying to say? Well, I don't know that. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. Cause what, what I was going to say is sort of related to what you're saying before that anyway. Okay. Um, <laughs> I don't think I can do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. I won't make you. <laughs> we've, we've redone enough. But so something that I found interesting was when Alfie Enoch, who plays Dean Thomas, moved over to the U.S. and he's um, he's English, and he wrote an essay about the experience of suddenly being a black actor instead oh, yeah. of just an actor, as um, that was a part of his identity that was. Um, that I guess was projected on him by the context of, of being an actor in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember reading that. Yeah. And I guess, cause I think, cause he's mixed too. Yeah. He's um, Latino. His dad is white. Mm-hmm. Um, his mom is like Brazilian. So yeah, I remember like reading that and he was just like, it's a different, especially cause I like think they're pretty well off too. And so like just not having to, think about that kind of stuff and then you come to the u.s where that's like a thing <laughs> no matter how well off you are it's a thing yeah, yeah. It's a thing right um yeah so yeah i mean i guess yeah okay so i think i get what Ron was trying to say now so like just like are i think are there any situations i guess like how harry comes into the wizarding world and just and like sees this like like there's this new system that he has to learn and there's like new things that he didn't know was a problem. That's now a problem. Um, like where there's in- instances, and I guess this kind of happened with um, Alfred Enoch when he came here, like coming into something and realizing, Oh, this part of my identity actually matters more than I like thought it would in this particular situation. That's why I like having you around. <laughs> <laughs> summarize my my ramblings there there was there was a point there you you just didn't I didn't know it yet I just couldn't get it out (laughs) yeah I think it's really interesting because when Harry is accepted as a wizard finally this part of his identity that was questioned from his muggle life the snacks is high (laughs) part of his identity that was questioned um of like not understanding things about himself from his life at the Dursleys that is resolved and explained, but all of these other things are, um, are coming to fruition. And I think that's something that is, is relatable in, in, in whenever you're in, in whenever you're put into a different context. And so when I, I came over here to study at Oxford, I realized what about myself was American. Mm -hmm. 
And when I went to that high school, I, I realized how I was being perceived as, as Asian or as, um, as just minority of like not really assigning it to anything, but, um, I, I think it's, it's contextual and, and that that's probably a, a context within Hogwarts that is different, whether you're in the Slytherin common room or any of the other common rooms. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's something that, um, some in, internal work, I know that we talked about kind of like the internal work of, of reckoning with your, your identity with yourself, but like reckoning with that context and like, so you've done the work, right? And you're like, okay, I am, you know, I am a mixed person or I am a, you know, a half blood and blood purity. And you've reckoned with that inside yourself. And then the context changes. Do you have to do it all over again? Or is it just like new information that you take in and, and filter in your, in your experience? <laughs> Make you speak for everyone. <laughs> I, I feel like I am, I'm, I'm pretty aware compared comparatively to when I was a kid and did not understand all of the different identities that people assumed about me. Um, cause there's sort of two ways you can look at it where there's the, the, the factual background of like, um, of ethnicity and nationality and then there's stuff that I understand about myself, like being a Gryffindor or being an introvert that is, is like, oh, this is a thing about me that I'm understanding about my personality. Um, and so I'm, I'm constantly working on, on, on understanding all of those pieces. And that's, um, that's what I consider heroin training to be because I don't subscribe to the idea of your life's purpose. I, prefer to understand exactly how I want to engage in each thing that I do, whether it's like how I would like to spend new year's Eve or how I would like to, um, be woken up in the morning. All of those little things are, are, um, are tendencies that I'm becoming more aware of. And then being in different contexts will, will often help me understand part of that through understanding other people's experiences where I'm thinking about like if I'm traveling to a different country and I'm noticing something that's very different culturally it'll help me understand something that I have always taken as fact right right that makes sense um okay um a couple wrap-up questions and then we'll do MVP and bench um what is your favorite book of the ah, Harry Potter series. Of the Harry Potter series, Goblet mm-hmm. of Fire. Ooh. Wow, new one. Really? I like it. Yeah. We usually get... Um, Disney of Azkaban. Or, uh, or, or Phoenix. Phoenix. Really? Which is also our, like, it's like our constant Our internal fight. fight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. well, I'll, just, I'll just nestle right in the middle there. And that's what I really like about Goblet of Fire, where I consider it to be the keystone of the series, where it's that transition point where between the um, the childhood years of years one through three with the the battle and the war that takes place in 
five through seven, you get a little bit of, of both of those things and that, that switching point as well, where things become serious. Yeah. yeah. I get that. Cause I definitely like in like later rereads of Goblet of Fire, like when I first read it, like I liked it, but then I read Order of the Phoenix and that's my favorite. But I'm like in later rereads of Goblet of Fire, I was like, oh, this is just like, it's like everything happens in it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, so I definitely get that. Cause yeah. Yeah. Um, and then which is your favorite Harry Potter movie? Half-Blood Prince. Ooh. Ooh. But they burned is down the borough. Is also an unusual choice? <laughs> I don't know, because I... I don't think talking, we really have a favorite. Like, Yeah, I don't think we have a favorite. We have least favorite. I have least favorite. Um, yeah. What's your least favorite? Order of the Phoenix. Yes. And my least favorite is Half-Blood Prince. But... <laughs> oh, I also realized as we were rereading, rewatching Order of the Phoenix, um, I've only, I think I've only seen Half-Blood Prince all the way through once in theater. I've only seen Deathly Hallows part two once. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, because I was like, why, why did they burn down the burrow? And that's all I can think about when we talk about that mm. movie. So I'm like, okay, there are actually other things there. happened, but there. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. I think at Order of, the, Order of the Phoenix was a very important movie for me because it's when I had to come to terms with the fact that I could not be emotionally attached to the film adaptations, that they were just adaptations. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was so disappointed in that movie that I... I had to like sit down with myself and decide <laughs> to not care so much about it. Yeah. And maybe as a result, I was able to enjoy half blood Prince and let go of that. some of those things. Yeah. Whereas, That's like, how I kind of think about half blood Prince too. Like I, like my expectations for order of the Phoenix were so high. Cause it's my favorite book that because it just was like, didn't meet them at all. I was like, I was so mad that I immediately went home and reread it. Like reread <laughs> order of the Phoenix. I was like, I just need a palate cleanser. <laughs> like I can't, <laughs> Yeah. the prince came out i was like my expectation was no longer that high so watching it i'm like yeah it's fine like <laughs> it's a, it's i amazing. think prince is the height of the actor's talent mm-hmm. combined with or like development um I'm, I'm so impressed with dan radcliffe in that film and his humor um yeah. and it was a really fun film um combined oh, i do like, remember the pincers yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah and it combined like what's great yeah my love of the um like romantic comedy genre mm-hmm. with harry potter and then in splitting deathly hollows up in two parts that sort of makes it feel like not a movie to me mm-hmm. <laughs> in a way that it it would have probably been better i I don't, I don't know i haven't seen it in a while yeah, I get that. Especially because, like, where they stop, I think, in, like, where part two lift starts off, it's very much just, like, action sequence for the whole time. Yeah. yeah. I don't like action sequence. It's, like, sequences. very much, like, we just, it's the scene that happens to take two and a half hours. Which is really funny because I think that's why I love part one. Yeah, I like part a, one. It's a slow burn and this, like... Mm-hmm what do you do when you have a goal, but you don't have uh, an end and a destination, but you don't have a map to get there. Right. And so yeah. this, 
meandering. I love that about Deathly Hallows. And I love that. That's Yeah, that's one of the things I love the most about Deathly Hallows, and so I think that's why I like part one a lot. Um, so, on to the more difficult things. For, we always do an MVP and a bench, no matter what, um, even for our bonus episodes. I'm thinking that we should MVP and bench our favorite half-bloods. What do you think, oh. Diana? What were you going to do? I didn't have an idea. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so who are we talking? This is out of... So there's Harry Potter, Snape, Umbridge, Voldemort, Dean <laughs> Thomas. Seamus. Um, Seamus is a half-blood? Yeah. Because um, his dad's a muggle. There was like a whole thing. His dad's it, a muggle. His Remus, mom's a witch. Remus is... Remus. Ooh. Tonks. Uh, Tonks. Anyone that you can think of, basically. (laughs) That's a good good starting point of eight. More than, than, yeah, I was like, yeah. What are we MVPing them for? Just overall, what you love or don't like. Okay. I feel compelled to pick Harry because first of all, I'm not sure if there are many other contexts in which I would pick Harry. (laughs) And so Um, he he deserves this one, but I think he, I think he had, he maintains perspective of his privilege in this sense and will always stand up for Hermione and will stand up for Muggleborns and, um, and be a, a voice to um, to advocate for them when he could easily he could easily not he could easily just um, just sort of blend in with the famous purebloods. Mm. Yeah, you yeah. know what? You're in your description of that. It made me want to MVP him as well. And I was going to choose someone completely different, but yeah, he does that immediately. Even before he meets Hermione, when he meets Draco in Diagon Alley and Draco talks about blood purity in such a way, he is immediately turned off by that. When he could have said, oh, I should just, you know, go with that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, those are the people I should hang out with. So, yeah, I'm going to go with Harry as well. Wow. Sorry. Who was your other person? It was going to be Remus um, Lupin. And that's really just because I, I love him. That's fair. I think <laughs> if I were best friends with any character from the Harry Potter series, it would be him. Serious. Yeah. Oh. Remus. Remus. <laughs> <laughs> we could just we could hang out with the Marauders together. Yeah. <laughs> I'm James in this equation. I, I, want, I, want I hate both. James. But no, I'm just I, saying I, I'm James and I want to be best friends with both. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's well. Um, I chose Dean just because. That um, was what I was going to choose. Sorry, not Remus. I was choosing Dean the whole way through until I forgot. <laughs> and then chose Harry. Sorry, Lupin, you're out. Dang. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I like, I choose Dean just because, like, his story of just, like, not knowing is super, um, I don't know, it just resonates with me. Um, and I hope at some point he learns more about, like, his father his families and his dad and that kind of stuff. Yeah, his dad seemed really cool. Yeah. Um, cool. Who would you bench? I'm going to bench Salazar Slytherin for starting all of this. Real. Ooh. 
Yes. Love it. At Hogwarts anyway. That's as far back as we know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I did Umbridge because she's the worst. That makes and sense. She, yeah, that's pretty much why. Like yeah. she just dis like she literally just disowned all of her non-magical family. And her magical family. And her magical family. <laughs> she just but, like first the non-magical. Yeah. And then she was like, okay, and you can go too, Dad. You're not gonna help my career. Yeah. Um wow, yeah. Facts. I choose Voldemort. Um, mostly too, just for like so we kind of talked about like the the blind spots that you don't know. He could have found out. Like he like there was a 23 and me basically. Like <laughs> Dumbledore figured it out. He could have figured it out. And he still gets his origin story wrong and then proceeds to take it out on untold numbers of um, people, magical and non-magical alike. Um, and then to keep with tradition, I also bench J.K. Rowling and Warner Brothers because <laughs> they could have done better. And continue to not do better. Happens every time. I, I want to echo the thoughts of of something one of my friends said to me at GLA, which was um, we had a, a another workshop or another panel on femininity this year, Grace Gordon and I hosted. And I there were, me too. <laughs> and there was a lot of um, emotion, um, particularly about Fantastic Beasts and Johnny Depp being in the cast. And, um, and what one of my friends told me afterwards was, we, it would, she, she thought there was something missing of like, of, um, of considering the humanity of Joe Rowling's experience as well. And, mm-hmm. and to, to think about like why she's portrayed characters in this way is probably because of things that she's experienced mm-hmm. and, and how, how the world has appeared to her. And so, um, I try to, I, I find it difficult to navigate um, as an adult noticing things that I would have done, that I would like to have been done differently and characters that, you know, more representation in lots of ways. But what what helps me feel better about it is, is having compassion for what one person's experience um, might have been like and the, the, the difficulty it, it is to... Um, to cover it all. Yeah. And I think I feel that way for her, for the first books, it's more my continuing, my continual benchings comes from the extended canon, which is again, a similar thing to Voldemort. Like you have the resources to get the information and you choose not to. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that is, and and the fact that we know because of the care that she took. She's back in. I know. Oh my gosh. Thank you. You screaming doesn't help. Um, sorry. The I like that she screamed. She's barking like I can't. <laughs> that she um, she has the resources, and that we know that she's capable of it because of the care that she took in the first in in writing the the first series. That doesn't seem to be happening in the continuing canon. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. But, you know, it's a good thing to, it's another thing that we can, as Potterheads, can debate and argue and think about 
thank you guys so much. <laughs> yes. Um, thank you, Zandra, for joining us. Yes. Thank you. Um, you all can follow um, Zandra on Twitter at Heroin Training. Um, and then on Wednesday, we will resume our regular schedule and discuss Chapter 12 of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, Silver and Opals. Um, so you can read and follow along. Um, follow us at We Black and Nerds. Use the hashtag Wizard Team um, to discuss these things. And we will talk thank you, you so today. much. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye, everyone. Bye.